Stand at Ease, episode 27, Sunday, February 12th, 2012. Where the hell do you fucking buy beer for $75 a six pack, right? Hey, I still have my combat surfboard. Now, you went to Way City. I want to give a little bit of background into Way City. But it's uh, unfortunate. I I want to say to you, Eddie, this is the very first time that any guest has shut me up. Welcome back, everybody. As always, it's a pleasure to have over to my left, D. Bjorn Christian, hailing from North North Dakota up there. Get that that D in there, right? Yeah, North Dakota. Yeah, North Dakota. (laughs) Grand Forks, North Dakota. What's the temp over there, Moen Frere? Oh, it's still pleasant and balmy. 30 degrees now. Oh, well, that's not too bad. And over to my right, both metaphorical and political right, James L. Johnson, hailing from the now-recovering Detroit, Michigan area. Welcome back, James. How are we doing, man? It's I, good to talk to you again. Fe- feeling, uh, feeling pretty good, actually, when you really break this thing down and the stuff. I mean, it seems like we just did this just a few hours ago, right? <laughs> it, it does feel that way, I'll tell you. <laughs> like deja vu all over again. <laughs> Hey, at any rate, yes. And then we have now. This is good. I'm gonna try to. I'm gonna do everything that I can here. We got. Um, uh, we've got Eddie hailing from Rahway, New Jersey, which is in central New Jersey. For those of you that are out there, that's exit 135. Welcome aboard, Eddie. Thank you. And James is going to. James knows a lot about you, so he does a heck of a job of doing the introduction. So I thought I would let James give us the the whole breakdown here and and uh, give us a quick hello. Well, I'm very, very excited about this show for a couple different reasons. Number one, we've got four Marines on this show where normally I don't get everybody as a Marine. I got a retired Sergeant Major in the Marine Corps, also a Vietnam vet, and somebody who really reaches out and helps an awful lot of veterans. So it's Sergeant Major Eddie Neese, and if you don't mind, we'll just call you uh, Eddie during the radio show here. All right. Now, I, I do talk. I do understand that uh, you're a Paris Island Marine, and that's, I was a Hollywood correct. Marine. And We're all Hollywood Marines there, there Moan Fresh. <laughs> yeah, I, hey, I still have my combat surfboard. <laughs> Are you still wearing sunglasses? Damn right. Uh, <laughs> Are you still Listen. sexing the sand fleas? <laughs> <laughs> Eddie, you know, I want to start this thing out with, uh, you joined the Marine Corps, what year? In 1966. 1966. And you were, what, 17 years old then? On my 17th birthday, I got up and went down to talk to the Marine recruiter about joining the Marines, and I was in boot camp. My birthday was on the 4th of January. I was in boot camp two weeks later on the 21st. (laughs) <laughs> they didn't they didn't fart around as far as uh waiting three four five six months to, uh to get you in, into the core back then you know with oh, the war know. going on they they pumped us right in and out right out well i know what i had uh, the next uh, i had day. quit high school i I'm just i had quit high school I, I had attended aviation high school in queens new york and uh when I went down to the recruiter, I said to the recruiter, look, I went to aviation high school. Can I be a, a pilot? And the recruiter looked at me and he said, sure, sign here. And I'm still <laughs> waiting to go to Pensacola. <laughs> you don't mean somebody lied to you, Eddie. Come on now. I don't believe it. <laughs> I, I think you might have misinterpreted. 
<laughs> well, you honest, went- as much as I wanted to be a grunt, so when I got assigned 03, it was not a big deal. It was what I wanted, really. So, Well, I'll tell you a story, Eddie. Whenever I went down and enlisted, I said, I want to enlist in the Marine Corps, but I got a couple conditions. And the recruiter looked at me and says, what's those conditions? I says, well, you got to promise me you'll send me to Vietnam. And you got to promise me that you'll put me in the infantry. He says, I think I can do all those things for you. So, I mean, <laughs> flight school wasn't in the uh, program for me. You can now, cut a hard in, bargain there, buddy. <laughs> well, you went in when you uh, were seven, so you couldn't go to combat till you turned 18, right? That's right. I had to wait a year before I went to combat. As a matter of fact, when I brought the papers home, they had my mother sign because I was under 18. My mother says, I'm not going to sign those. I said, well, look, if you don't sign them, you're just going to go back there and tell them I made a mistake and I lied. I'm really 18. And with everything going on, it would have been no problem with me getting in the Corps at, at that time. But my mother reluctantly signed the papers, and I went and turned it back in the following day. So so what did you do for that year? Well, uh, after uh, boot camp, I uh, graduated in March of uh, 1966, on the 18th to be exact. And I went to ITR, and I spent uh, my first couple of months uh, with... Uh, H&S Company, 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines at Camp Lejeune in the 106 and Flamethrower Platoon. And uh, in September, my battalion, 1-2, went down to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba uh, for five months of security on the uh, island of uh, Guantanamo Bay. And now look what they turned it into. Absolutely. Well, you know, I was originally from Brooklyn. That's where I grew up. And uh, I got put on a ship. And, you know, in the Caribbean, and I couldn't believe water was really crystal clear and blue. And I couldn't believe the, the waters at the uh, beach on the Cuba were nice and blue and clean and everything. So it was kind of like a, a little bit of a culture shock. But uh, Cuba was a great place to be. Uh, beautiful sand, beaches, uh, but no women. <laughs> Just Mary Palm, huh? But I absolutely. But I was I was too young to really appreciate them at the time, anyway. So, well, let's fast so forward another shit. year. Let's absolutely. fast forward another year. Now, all of a sudden, on it, you request orders. You you did but request orders. I turned eighteen. Yeah. Yes, I did. The day I turned eighteen, I went in and uh, requested orders to Vietnam. Now you were machine gunner. Yes, I was. Uh, I was. A, my MOS was O three fifty one, and. Uh, when I got to uh, basic specialist training where they train you on your MOS, I was in the flamethrowers 106s and 3.5. But when I got to Vietnam, my platoon commander thought my MOS was a uh, machine gun, so he said, I'm sending you over to the first platoon guns. And, you know, we called 106s guns at the time, so I assumed I was going to 106s. But when I got over there, I was assigned to the machine gun squad, which made me even happier because that's really what I wanted to be anyway. I wanted to have a machine gun. So, were you the gunner or were you the ammo hamper? Well, uh, for the first couple of months, I humped ammo all over the flocking place. And, yep. uh, you know, 400 <laughs> rounds of the gun ammo in the cans, you know, with the bandolier straps was not very comfortable to do. So, but... I, you know, uh, that's what all new guys have to do, and I did it. A lot of guys don't understand that, uh, particularly over there. I mean, we carried a lot of machine gun ammo. I was lucky. I always had a, a gun squad that was assigned to me, 
in anything that I was involved in. And normally on it, they're, they're disposed on it by whoever the platoon commander or the company commander is. You don't always travel with a squad on it, so that was great. Absolutely, now, right. Now, you went to Way City. Now, I want to give a little bit of background into Way City. Way City, we fought one of the largest battles that was ever fought in the Vietnam War. And according to history books, 1959 to 1975, they called it the Vietnam War. And in the Way City battle, there was over 5,000 civilians that were killed. Somewhere around five to 8,000 enemy was killed. It was hard to get an accurate count. But we lost a combined total of 668 killed there with 3,700 people wounded. So that was a hell of a battle. And what made Way City so important was the fact that Highway, uh, the biggest supply line, Highway 1, passed right through Way City. It was also the base for the Navy, for the boat supplies. So Way City, strategically, was an important location. It was about 30-some-odd miles from the DMZ. But we didn't have this place defended. And then Tet rolls around, 1968, and they got hit. Something like uh, 10,000 enemies came into Way City. So now I just kind of set the background. You take it over from there. You were in 1-1 uh, at that time, right? Yes, Alpha Company 1-1, First Patrol. All right. What went through an 18-year-old boy's mind on it? Well... My first, I got to Vietnam in August of 1967, and so my first six months prior to Way City were all fought in the sand dunes and the rice paddies from 25 miles south of Da Nang at a place called Hoi An, and then in September, our battalion was moved up north to support the uh, 3rd Marine Division. Uh, back in 66 and 67, the 1st Marine Division was in the southern section of, say, uh, the Da Nang area, and the 3rd Marine Division was all up north, from the Quang Tree, Phu Bai area. So as things were picking up, uh, so to speak, uh, in 1967, they started moving elements of the 1st Marine Division to help uh, support what was going on up in the 3rd uh, Marine Division's area. And my battalion was the one of the first to be moved up north. And uh, prior to Way City, I had... Uh, been on a big operation called Operation Medina. Uh, I was at Contien for about 30 days and uh, came back to Quang uh, Tree, and we provided uh, security on a new airfield that was being built at Quang Tree at the time. And in early, uh, matter of fact, on the 31st of January, 1968, 1-1 was relocating from Quang Tree down to Fubai, and the area was being taken over by the units of the 101st Airborne and the 1st Air Cap. So uh, that night, for some unknown reason, first part of 1st Platoon and half of the machine gun squad, which I was attached to at the time, was stuck at Quang Tree for a transportation snafu or reasons. They couldn't get helicopters or five tons to take us down. So we had to stay down at the uh, Quang Tree area for another night. Well, that night is when the Tet Offensive started throughout the country. And while we were sitting on the side of a road, a uh, unit of self-propelled 8-inch howitzers had 
come into the perimeter, which was now controlled by First Air Cab at 101st, and we needed a place to uh, sleep, and the the eight inches needed a place to uh, bivouac for the night. So what they did, they had put the eight inches on the outside of the perimeter, and what was left of the first platoon provided they basically a 180 security perimeter around the eight inches, and that's where we slept or were supposed to sleep that night. And Klein uh, Tree was a, a pretty big base, you know, that was off the side of the opposite side of the road from uh, the airfield. And that night, uh, when the Tet Offensive started. Uh, rockets started landing in the perimeter, which we, the first Marines, had just occupied, and now we're landing and exploding on the uh, troops of the uh, 101st, 101st Air Camp. The eight inches had all opened up, woke everybody up who was, you know, sleeping at the time, and that was our introduction to uh, the Tet Offensive. We finally got down to uh, full by about a day and a half later, and found out that what was left of Alpha Company at Fubai moved into Way City on the first night of the 31st of uh, January. Uh, an understrength company, like I said, minus a uh, half of a tomb. And uh, the uh, company commander, Captain Gordon Batson, was severely wounded that day. Uh, a corpsman from our platoon, uh, Bobby Kemmelbacher from Brooklyn, New York, who I became very tight with, uh, was known as Doc Brooklyn, was killed that first day, and a bunch of members of uh, the platoon and the, the company were severely wounded. So needless to say, it was quite a shock uh, from hearing about what was happening on day one of a battle, even though I had been in country for about six months. It was uh, a big-time shock. On the morning of the 4th of February, when we were leaving, uh, flew by to take another convoy into Way City, uh, with Bravo Company 1-1, one, one. Uh, first platoon jumped on the truck, and just prior to getting on the truck, we had heard one of my former platoon members from first platoon, Sergeant Alfredo Gonzalez, uh, who was moved over in January to uh, third platoon to take over as platoon commander, was killed in Way City. And uh, so, like I said, before I even got into Way City, we had lost two or three members of the platoon, which was... I'm not saying not normal, but it was uh, it was very difficult to understand that you lost two or three guys within a matter of days. Where sometimes you were lucky if uh, if only one or two guys were killed, depending on what type of operation you were on. So, and one thing about Waste City, like I said, I said before that my uh, time first six months in Vietnam were in the rice paddies and the sand dunes of the country. Way City was the ancient imperial capital of Vietnam, and it was nothing but houses. It was like being in your hometown. Uh, we even had some vehicles that were in there that were, at times, uh, very well-traveled roads in and out of the, the city and around the city. Uh, there were bridges that went over the Fulcan Canal and then wanted to expand the uh, Perfume River that separated the north and south side of uh, Way City. And as we were riding a convoy into Way City along Highway 1, we happened to notice one or two tanks that were basically destroyed. Uh, one had a turret blown off, 
It was an Auburn tank, had a turret blown off and crashed into the side of a building. Another one was off the side of a road with a big hole in the, in the uh, turret, and it was also disabled. And as we got closer to Way City, we started seeing a lot of bodies, civilian, unfortunately, civilian bodies that were laying all over the place. And we were all looking at each other. This was We were getting into something that was uh, we probably weren't used to. And uh, by the time we got over the uh, first bridge at the Full Camp Canal and went into the, the other side of the city, and we were going to a place in Way City that there was only one building that was under control. There's only one building that was under control of uh, the Americans. That was the MACV compound that the Army had. Every other building or every other part of the town was uh, controlled by the NVA and the BC who had uh, taken over the city. As we got to these two rice paddies, the enemy opened up on both sides of us, and uh, there were traces coming from both sides, coming out of the convoy, coming from all the buildings and windows that you could see. And uh, how nobody in this convoy got hit was uh, beyond uh, my wildest dreams. You ever see those pictures of... Uh, the short timer where the, you got the helmet and the boots under it. Well, that's exactly how we looked on the side of the, the five tons going into Way City, firing out from under our helmet into the buildings and everything. We're on the other side of uh, the rice paddy. And we pulled into the Mach B, the Mach B compound and basically jumped off the truck and looked at each other in, like, total shock. I mean, it was just an unnormal, abnormal amount of fire we received, and tanks that were destroyed, and uh, it was kind of a big shock. But again, we were in a housing development, like I said, being in your hometown. And what was really taken, we were seeing bodies all over the place. And as we got closer to Way City, you started seeing the NV-8 who had been killed uh, with 1-1 and uh, other units that had gone into Way City all over the place. And uh, it was a big idol. We were kind of stunned, at a, at a, in a sense. Uh, we stood in there in the MACB compound for a little bit, and one of the first missions we had to go out on, we had to go retrieve the bodies of two Marines who were out by the stadium who had been killed out on a patrol, and uh, the bodies were not recovered. So we... As we left the MACD compound and we made a left to go out of the uh, compound and we had to go up the street and then make a right-hand turn to the stadium where the bodies were, you, you could actually look at the buildings. And I've used this analogy a couple of, t couple of times. I would look at stuff in Waste City and I said, wow, just like the movies, not realizing, or I realized this many years later, what the movies were made of is what I was actually seeing and doing and being in uh, at the time. The uh, There were bodies in the, hanging out of the windows. There were bodies stuck in the barbed wire. There were bodies in the window ditches. And there were bodies on the uh, on the street. We had a 20-millimeter uh, duster with us that was going to provide security. We had the uh, what was part of our first platoon and part of Bravo Company, uh, on each side of the road, on each side of the, the duster, and we, it was very quiet. That was another thing that was me, uh, is very strange. It was very quiet. You could hear, you could almost hear everybody in your own unit talking, but nothing outside 
in the city you heard. You didn't hear people talking. You didn't hear anything going on. And as we made a uh, uh, about 50 yards outside the Mac B compound, unfortunately, a bunch of civilians jumped up out of the side of the road on the right side to get to the other side. And with it being so intense and so fierce and with all the death that was around us, the, the two-point men and the uh, dust opened up on the civilians, not realizing they were civilians at the time, and unfortunately a few of them were killed. So, I mean, here we are getting involved with a lot of death in the city, going out to get uh, a few Marines who had been killed, and we had basically a couple of civilians got caught in the, the fire of us on patrol. We were able to go out and uh, retrieve the two bodies and bring them back to uh, the MACB compound. And like I said, for, for hours, everybody had that deer in the headlight look uh, as we uh, kind of looked at each other, really didn't talk with each other. We were basically in shock with what was going on. It was just something totally different than what we had experienced. And like I said, I was in the country for six months. And by the time I got out of Way City, which was uh, three, three and a half weeks later, uh, I saw more death and destruction both on both the enemy side and, and on the side of my uh, company than I saw in my entire tour in Vietnam. It was a shock. Now, you were wounded in Way City also, right? Yes, I was. Uh, my first wound, I got a, uh, I was at the Fulcan Canal uh, providing security as the NBA had blown the bridge into uh, that forest that went into the city. They had blown that one. They had blew the bridge across the river, the perfumes. And so there was no roadway in. Combat engineers were building a pontoon bridge. And this this came later in in the battle. This was not the first couple of weeks. Uh, We provided security there, and I was on, on gun watch, and I was inside this little room, and there was a window, and a mortar round landed outside uh, the window and it blew the concussion into uh, the room and basically uh, perforated my right eardrum, which I can't really hear today. From over the years, it's gotten worse. And it, you know, sometimes not hearing that on the right side is a pretty good thing when you're in the car with your wife and she's talking to you <laughs> and, she's telling, and she's telling you something you don't want to hear or you agree with. But all can aside, so I was. Uh, Sent over, they, they gave me some drops, you know, uh, put some rust on my uh, ear, and I went back, uh, you know, which most walking wounds did, did not leave your platoon or squad, whatever the case may be. Not that I wanted to leave at the time, but, uh, you know, walking wounded just stayed in there. And I, fortunately, uh, on the 28th of February, uh, we were running a platoon-sized uh, uh, patrol up the long Ancal River to this short area to get to this bridge to go to the other side. When me and my platoon sergeant were watching right by a pagoda and watching a fire team run to the other, sec- other side to secure the bridge so we could move the platoon through, uh, the NBA who were on the other side opened up and got three of us uh, shot one Marine in the knee in the fire team who I don't even know his name because he had just got to us the night before. He was on his second tour. Uh, I got shot through the left shoulder and uh, went in the back out the arm 
I didn't bleed a lot. I didn't have any bone damage. I didn't have any nerve damage, but it was an in-and-out wound, so I was going to be a back. Unfortunately, my baton sergeant, Sergeant Joseph Burkhart, uh, who had replaced uh, Sergeant Alfredo Gonzalez when he moved over to 3rd Baton, who was also on his second tour, uh, was shot through the neck, and the bullet came out the back. And unfortunately, today he's paralyzed living in California. And uh, as we, uh, and this is another thing I talked about, as after I spun around, I'm laying on the side of the pagoda, and the bullets are bouncing off the pagoda and everything. And I said, man, just like the movies. And it, I, I said that a couple of times in Way City, and it took me many years to realize, well, the movies are made to what you're going through. So my platoon sergeant, who I had only known for about 40 days, like I said, he was brand new. He was a uh, second-time uh, Vietnam vet. Uh, to me, was the best Marine I ever saw in combat. So being a machine gun squad leader, my machine gun squad leader was killed. Matter of fact, 42 years ago today, Sergeant uh, Corporal Norris Brendan from Minnesota was killed today, uh, 42 years ago. Sergeant Gonzalez was killed the day before on, on 4 February. And uh, on the 28th, uh, when I was uh, wounded, I was, I was medevaced out of the, uh, uh, the area. The company was getting ready to leave Way City, but I was going to the hospital for a while. You picked up your third Purple Heart up in Quezon, uh, right? Now, I, got, I got shrapnel up at Quezon in April of 68. I spent a month in the hospital between, and I got a little quick story about this. I was down at uh, Cameron Bay, and I, I hooked up with this uh, this Sergeant Carter from the Army, and uh, we were bedmates, you know, one by the force of each other, and we thought we were two good-looking guys, and there was this nice nurse from uh, Indiana, I'll never forget her name, Lieutenant Phyllis Brinson, and uh, of course we both were trying to pick her up and hit on her and all that other good stuff, and we would stay up at night talking to her all night long. You know, trying to get more information out of her and, you know, and, uh, you know, being very respectful, of course, of everything. But as we were having a conversation, uh, the nurse says to me, why do you keep going hang? And what happened because of the uh, eardrum uh, injury I had a couple of weeks ago, I had trouble hearing or making out words that were being said. Now, I heard, I could hear the words, but I couldn't actually make them out. So she said, what's the matter? So I had my eardrum, you know, uh, damaged a couple of weeks ago. So she sent me for a test. And then the test meant I had to go to open out, excuse me, uh, to Japan for some further tests on my hearing and found out that I had a, a hearing loss. Well, anyway, getting back to the nurse, uh, neither one of us had any luck with her. And, uh, matter of fact... <laughs> Matter of fact, the next morning when it was like that zero seven, where we figured we could go back to our rack and uh, get some sleep and everything, uh, we started to lay down, and the lights were turned on, and they said, "Yep, get up." And uh, she had turned us in for being up all night, and uh, so we, <laughs> so we really loved her now, and uh, basically uh, we had to uh, get up because when you were in the hospital recovering. Uh, they didn't want you laying in the bed all day. They wanted you to get up and about and start, you know, becoming as normal as possible. And I was in a room with mostly uh, 
shrapnel wounded Marines, gunshots wounds, you know, and everybody was being uh, uh, treated daily, you know, getting bandages replaced and that two or three times a day, depending on the severity of your wounds. And uh, so uh, after Way City, like I said, between the time of Cameron Bay in Japan, I had a month in a hospital, and I got back to my uh, platoon, who was at Kason right now on Operation Pegasus, and uh, it was at a place called LZ Stud. And uh, my my company was up on a hill on a uh, operation, and uh, they came down about a, a day or two later, and uh, at, when the seizure Kason was broken with that operation. Alpha Company was sent up to uh, Hill 861 Alpha. And about two weeks later, we were out on a, a patrol, or shall I say, a uh, blocking force. There were three platoons on top of the hill, 861 Alpha. Second platoon had stayed back at the base to provide security. Uh, first platoon was on a blocking force, and third platoon was going out to take out a 60-millimeter mortar that was harassed in the hill. Basically, they were dropping rounds on our hill, and they had a sniper team, from what I was told, uh, spotted where the mortar position was. So the following day, uh, there was an operation that came out to take out this 60-millimeter uh, mortar. Unfortunately, about uh, 100 or 200 yards behind that 60-millimeter uh, mortar was an 82-millimeter mortar. And uh, as first platoon was on the top of the hill on a blocking force, uh, the first thing that started, two rounds, two rounds came over our head. I was standing next to this guy, uh, Buzzett, and uh, we looked at each other. So oh, here we go again. So we get down in the in a, one of the bomb craters on the hill, and we're watching third platoon, a few Marines are going up to this 60 millimeter mortar position to drop a few grenades when you can see a grenade coming out of the hill going to the the marines were coming up to them and they rolled down and got away from it and we finally were my machine gun squad was providing cover fire onto that pole where the mortar was so it would make it a little hard for these uh nv8s to load the 60 millimeter mortar with a round we kept firing into the position we had jets come out we had helicopters drop stuff on them to finally knock out that six, or try and knock out that 60, but then this 82-millimeter mortar opened up on the hill, and uh, the rounds were being dropped on the hill 861, where 2nd Platoon was, and on top of the blocking force where 1st Platoon was. And uh, basically, I lost uh, one of my, uh, another member of my platoon, uh, Lance Hubble, Mike, Mike Clayton, uh, who, along with the uh, Lance Corporal Reeves was severely wounded. Clayton was killed instantly, unfortunately, with shrapnel wounds. Doc uh, Tora Corman was severely wounded in that hole. Everybody was hanging out in, in the, the bomb crater when the, uh, the mortar exploded. And I was running up from one position to the next position to take out, pick up the second machine gun who was, was knocked out by a mortar. And I ran by the first first machine gun when the mortars were coming in I got down and I caught shrapnel in the hand. So basically it was my uh, third purple heart and uh, to be honest at the time I was scared. I was now after seven and a half months in Vietnam I was now getting scared and which was not a good thing. Uh, being a machine gun squad leader uh, you, 
to me, you needed to be in control and confident in what you were doing, but I was not afraid of getting hit again. I was afraid of getting shot, and again, I had, as I stated before, I had got shot in the back, and I, was, I would never put my back around anything anymore. I would never, you know, I never wanted to get shot again in the back. So I was now thinking about everything I was supposed to be doing, you know, with the reaction I was now thinking about doing. So uh, it wasn't, it wasn't a good time. Well, you so, see what happens and that's something I always watched out for. You know, you were getting down to a short timer. Your tour was about up and then you've got to right. be really careful then because you make stupid mistakes. Yep. You know that so you, you watch TV. Excuse me. You watch TV and you listen to to people being interviewed and everything, and people they ask you if you were scared, and you said no. And for the most part, you never was scared because you would, hopefully, if you had been trained well and you listened and you did what you were supposed to do, this all was into play for a reason. And uh, but then you then there are situations that start making you think otherwise uh, for whatever. Other reason, maybe you had too many killed in your baton or wounded, or you have been hit a couple of times, and now you thought, well, the next one's going to be the worst one or the bad one. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, unfortunately for me at the time, it was time to rotate back. Uh, but to be honest, as I look back on, you know, 40 years later, uh, I wish I stayed. Oh no! I listen. I understand totally. I mean, I spent three tours there, and to this day, I still feel very adamant about a lot of things. Let's move forward here because now you're transferred back to the states, right? Right. Okay, so you go back to the states, and then you finish your initial enlistment, and you went into the right. reserve. Right. I got out on uh, May of 1969. I took it early out. Matter of fact, this is a Another little thing about going back stateside, I was assigned to HMS 26 it was June, and you know, now going back as a corporal, I had received a meritorious promotion to uh, corporal while I was in Way City that I found out after that when I got my uh, service record book when I was in Okinawa. So I was promoted in Way City. And uh, I was a corporal, so I said, oh, that's great. I'm going back to Camp Lejeune. I'm going to be an NCO, and I'm going to start telling people what to do, and I won't have to go on mess duty or working parties or guard duty and not realizing that everybody who was at Camp Lejeune has already been back from Vietnam and were NCOs. <laughs> so, so now I was just another corporal in another platoon, and, uh, you know, so... After spending a couple of months at Lejeune, I said, yeah, this is not for me. And I volunteered. I was requesting orders to go back to Vietnam. I figured I could get promoted and pick up or even re-enlist and uh, get promoted to sergeant. I could go back to Vietnam as a platoon sergeant. And, well, right at the same time, uh, the Marine Corps was starting to downsize over in Vietnam, and uh, they were starting to have early outs. And I had a situation, which I'm, I've always told everybody, in May, when they started giving out the early outs, uh, Marines were getting out, depending on your ES, EAS, you got out uh, between April, May, and June on the 10th, the 20th, and the 30th. And uh, so on, the Marines were scheduled to get out on the 10th of May. We were having a party in the barracks. 
now, which is, you know, really a no-no. Uh, mm-hmm. And we went, we had booze and beer and alcohol and wine. It was like, you know, it was like being in a bar or a base. And uh, we were up all night partying for the guys getting out. And uh, unfortunately, we, we were being a little rambunctious. And uh, the next morning in formation, uh, I get called out along with uh, one of my friends and uh, the gun he wanted to see us. And he says, hey, uh, we heard you had beer in the barracks last night, and uh, the first sergeant wants to see you. And, you know, there was about 15 to 20 of us having a party, but there was only two of us that were named. And uh, so I go see the first sergeant. First sergeant uh, sends me to CO, and the CO looks at me, and he says, look, uh, you're going to have to go down to battalion office hours. You know, this is a, a base violation, blah, 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 all that other good stuff. So I had to go see the battalion commander for drinking in the barracks. And I go in to see the battalion commander, and I, I told everybody this, you know, this is the first time that I had ever been in trouble or the first time I had ever been caught doing something wrong. So <laughs> I go see the battalion commander, and he looks at my record book, and he looks at me, and I'm standing there squared away as could be, and he goes, well, you know, you were wrong last night, haven't and it, it, specification on the charge sheet was a six-pack of beer. And I'm saying to myself, you know, I'm, I'm not saying this out loud, of course. I said a six-pack. Colonel, we had way more than a fucking six-pack in the barracks. <laughs> I mean, your intel was not good, right? So he goes, I can't send you back to the barracks as a corporal because then all the other corporals are going to say, and I'm, I remember this verbatim. He says, if Corporal Neath can drink in the barracks, that means we can too. He says, I'm reducing you to pay grade E3, and he fined me $75 the beer. And again, in my subconscious, I'm going, where the hell do you fucking buy beer for $75 a six-pack, right? (laughs) But I didn't say that out loud, of course. So I had a a little bit bad taste in my mouth from getting busted, and uh, I decided to get out, and uh, two weeks later when my time came up versus going back to Vietnam. And, you know, to me, it was probably the right thing to do. But uh, as I look back on 40 years ago, uh, to me, today, it was the wrong thing to do. But well, I 76, you I, re-enlisted into the Marines, right? That's correct. In 1976, I went into the uh, reserves. And then in 1991, joined, uh, you went into uh, Desert Storm. Is that correct? I got activated for Desert Storm from uh, Golf Company uh, 225 and Picatinny Arsenal from uh, New Jersey, and uh, we were sent out to California to be the next big force that was going to go over to uh, Desert Storm because of the anticipation that there were going to be mass casualties, uh, we were going to have 10,000 killed and wounded and all that other good stuff, and basically we all know that the war ended, the, the ground war lasted for about four days, and I, I said to myself many times, I was pinned down for four days then this whole ground war had landed. So I didn't get to go back to Vietnam, uh, excuse me, to get to go back to combat again, which was a little annoying. I was a gunny at the time, and I was trying to put into play all the stuff I had learned uh, both well and all the things that I had done wrong uh, to try to put into play to hopefully some of these Marines would not make uh, the mistake going into combat. But I never got that chance, and uh, we were 
tag and off active duty about three months later, and basically all we did was stay at Camp Pendleton, and we came back uh, to New Jersey. Gotcha. Now, let's fast forward uh, a little bit more here on it. Now, you've got all this time in the Marine Corps. You retire out as a sergeant major. Congratulations on that. That's for damn sure. You're in a league right now, right? And let me get my information. I'm in a Marine Corps League detachment uh, from Whippany, New Jersey. Now, this is named Uh, after somebody you went to boot camp with? That's correct. Uh, When I joined the reserve unit up at Picatinny in 1988, there was a plaque on the wall. And it said the Lance Corporal Robert J. Slattery Detachment Marine Corps League. And I said to myself, God, that name sounds awful familiar. So I go back home that night, and I get out my uh, platoon book, and I go through the names, and there it is, Robert J. Slattery. And uh, he was a Marine who was in my platoon, and uh, basically he stood right across from me on the other side of the uh, platoon formation in the barracks at Paris Island. And he was about one Marine over to the right. I knew who he was from New Jersey. And we kind of, you know, the Marines that you're in boot camp with, you kind of get real tight with the ones that are right next to you or close to you. You might not know everybody personally if you were on the port side versus the starboard side. I mean, you knew everybody's name, but you didn't get to know a lot about him. And Robert Slattery was from Whippany, New Jersey. And he was a couple years older, older than me. And... He went right to Vietnam at ITR and BST. So anyway, when I found out, uh, I called up somebody from the Marine Corps League detachment, spoke to them, and I, he had told me that uh, Robert had been killed in Vietnam in July of 1967, the month before I got there. And uh, I asked him if he had any family in uh, local, and they said, yes, yeah, mother has a real estate agency on Route 10, and family still lives in town. So it took me about a month and a half to get up and up uh, hooyah or ball go over there and say hello. And I walked into the real estate office, and I asked for Alice Slattery. And uh, the the woman at the desk, there were two ladies at there. She says, I'm Alice Slattery. And I said, my name's Eddie Neese. I was in boot camp with your son, Robert. So, uh, you know, it was uh, an emotional moment. And the other lady in there was his sister, Pat. And uh, we hugged and talked a little bit, and I had my book with me, and we showed pictures of him and everything. And uh, I became very close with the family. Matter of fact, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Mr. Slattery celebrated her 82nd birthday. Me and my wife were there uh, with the family uh, helping us celebrate. So it was a a great way to spend the day. And uh, Robert, the one thing about... uh, being in boot camp, one side of the platoon or one side of the barracks used to make try and make the other side get in trouble. And this is before we rise. When one recruit got in trouble, the whole platoon paid. So that didn't last so long because we find out, you know, one guy makes a mistake, everybody pays. So we were trying now make sure that nobody made any mistakes because that means we're going to pay even if we did anything right or wrong. So... <laughs> but I, I joined that detachment. I joined that detachment, and I said, if I was ever going to join the Marine Corps League detachment, and there are a couple of that are closer to my home uh, today, but I felt it was uh, an honor and uh, something I had to do in his memory and uh, to honor him that I would join his detachment. Let's talk about your trips to Walter Reed and who okay. you visit there and the stories that you come up with there. All right. About 
my Marine Corps League detachment has a program called Marines Care, and since 19, excuse me, 19, since 2003, 2004, uh, before I became actively involved with the detachment, I would, you know, be in the attachment. I was coming out for two years, then I backed out for a little bit. I used to work close by to Whippany, so it was very easy to go to the meetings and everything. And then I kind of backed out of it a, a little bit. And uh, when I started getting back into the detachment's meetings in the mid 2000s, uh, I was told that you know, they visit the wounded down at the hospital. And uh, I said, well, how do you do that? And it's what they would get a bunch of Marines together, four Marines, from the detachment, get in the car, and they drive down to Bethesda, and they visit the wounded. And they said, you should come by and, you know, do that. And I was looking to do something different. When I retired in June of 2000 from the Marine Corps Reserve, I was a little annoyed. I was pissed that I was being retired, first of all. Uh, but in June of 2000, before everything was going on, September 11 happened 14 months later, you know, uh, it was it was calm. It's, all right, it's a good time to get out. My time is up. I got my 30 years in, and I'll get out. So I found out that uh, a local congressman found out what the detachment was doing, and he contacted Amtrak. And now Amtrak, for the past seven-plus years, has donated six train tickets a month for us to make the visit. So basically, we don't have to, there's no wear and tear on the body, there's no wear and tear on a, uh, a vehicle going down there. We meet at uh, Newark Penn Station in New Jersey, and uh, we, we uh, take a trip down to visit the wounded. So I finally made my first trip in uh, July of uh, 2006, and uh, I'm on the train ride, and I'm, I'm going to myself, what are we going to do here? I mean, what do you do? What are you going to say when you go into a room? You know, not knowing how severe some of these injuries were. I mean, only knowing, having been in combat myself and seeing on TV or reading the newspaper how some are severely wounded. Uh, I was trying to come up with, in my head, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? And I finally just said, you know, just go in there and see what happens and take it from there. And, uh, I asked how long we stay up on the floor, and they said, oh, about an hour. So I'm saying to myself, we're taking this three-hour train ride. We take a three-hour train ride back, and all we get is an hour. And on the train ride down, there's a conductor. He's coming up to get my ticket, right? And he says to me as I'm giving him the ticket, he goes, what's your major malfunction, Sergeant Major? Now, I don't know this guy from Adam. <laughs> and I look at him. I said, you know, like, who the hell are you talking to? And he's, he's got this, like, shit-eating grin. And then I look at the lapel. He's got a Marine Corps emblem on his uh, lapel. And I look down the, the row of the train, and there's my buddies in the, in the aisle laughing because they had sent them up there to break my balls. Right? <laughs> so I meet this guy, Mark Paselli, who uh, he gave me his phone number, and uh, he says, I'm a Vietnam vet. And I said, oh, okay, it's great. And he gave us a phone number just in case if we got stuck or missed a train, a scared you train to come back, you know, give him a call, see what he could do for us. So, so we said thank you and goodbye. Well, needless to say, I go up on the floor, and I'm the last one to leave the floor. So we're late. We missed the train at uh, Newark Penn. Now, none of the, the guys I was with was mad about this. So we missed the train. And uh, so I, I gave Mark a call. Mark comes over, gets us, and he worked on the the Accela 
train, which is an upscale train. It's a faster train. It makes less stops and everything. He puts us on his train, right, with his tickets, with our tickets, puts us train in a train in a, 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 a one of the cabs that has a table. So there's five of us sitting at this table, and uh, we're there for about 20 minutes, and this gentleman walks down, and he's in a suit and tie, and I'm looking at him, and I said, I know him. And it was uh, Senator Joe Biden from uh, Delaware, who always took the train between Washington and Delaware. And uh, he stops down, he, he loosens up his tie, and he shakes each one of his all hands, and he goes, I just want to thank each and every one of you for what you're doing today. Mark had known him for many years, and Mark had told him about us, what we were doing, so he came down, and for the next 15 or 20 minutes, Senator Biden would talk to us about this and that, what was going on. He was, he was uh, you know, running for president. Uh, he had made trips over to Iraq and uh, had made, you know, told us some stories of what he had done over there, and we shook hands, and we were, he, I had Vietnam on my shirt, and uh, he said, well, you remember, this happened in Vietnam, and, and this is what we're dealing with today, and, and after about 20 minutes, he left. Now, the train was kind of occupied with a lot of other people, and Senator Biden does not talk real low. And, you know, and nothing was being said negative or derogatory or anything, but people were, like, listening to the conversation that was going on. And he leaves, and a couple other people would come up and thank us for what we were doing. So I go to Mark and say, Mark, you think he'll, he'll take a picture with us? And he said, I'll go ask him. So he goes down to the first-class car, talks to Senator Biden, and... Uh, comes back, he said, when he gets off in Delaware, he'll come here and take a picture. So train stops in Delaware. We're looking down the, the road of the car, and nobody in there. I guess he, he had to run out. And all of a sudden, you hear, hey, get out here. He's on the platform with his one or two uh, people that were with him. The train holds up for an extra couple of minutes. We all get off the plane, uh, the train. He takes a picture with us, thanks us, and, and we leave. So I get home that night, and... Uh, I'm telling my wife, I said, you can't believe what happened today. First of all, I got to visit, you know, six or seven, eight wounded uh, veterans, Marines at the time. And I said, I met Senator Biden on the train. And one of the guys who was doing the, uh, the trip coordination at the time, who was a, one of the older members of our detachment, he called me up about two days later. He says, Eddie, it looked like you were pretty involved in that. He says, how would you like to take over the program? And I jumped at it. And uh, for the last five and a half years, I've been uh, uh, running the trips down to uh, Bethesda, coordinating, picking up stuff, and taking the items down. Now, even though in the program it's called Marines Care, we were only visiting Marines at the time. Now, I have nephews, and I got cousins and uncles who served in the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. And I had a little bit of an issue bypassing a room just to go visit a Marine. So I get back, and we have, we have these, like, quarterly meetings within the, our program called Marines Care. And I said, look, I would like to visit everybody that's in the hospital. We're all on the same side here, and I think they just need as much support as the Marines and the corpsmen that we see. And it was voted yes, and uh, we have been visiting every member of every military service who was in the hospital who would take a visit from us. We would walk in there and... Uh, talk with them and pass out all the stuff that we give out. Now, we have given out, uh, we had marine, nice, well-made marine Afghan blankets. And 
Now we now have one for the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. So when we go into a room, if it's a soldier or a sailor or an airman, he gets the blanket of his military service. And we pass out detachment coins. During the, the year, donations are made to our detachment for this program, for the Wounded Military Program. Uh, we shake, we have guys shaking the can at a local food store. We have golf outings. We have beefsteak dinners. We, we have lunches. Anything we could do to raise money comes into our detachment. And we put it in, and we go out and we purchase gift cards. And we pass out, uh, we used to do $25 gift cards, and now the gift cards are now a $50, $50 gift card. And we would pass out just to make things a little bit easier for the men and the families who are now in the room, which was something different from Vietnam. When you were wounded in Vietnam, you basically stayed in the hospital, the Philippines, Japan, Okinawa, whatever the case may be, and then you worked your way back to the United States when everything was uh, okay for the most part. Well, now they're sent right from the battlefield, and within a week, a few days, they're, they're in Bethesda or the various other military hospitals around the country. So, and the families are there with them. So you get to basically meet the family. You, you meet fathers who are Vietnam vets. You, uh, my wife has gone down. Mothers have gone down. Daughters have gone down. They get to talk to a daughter of a, a wounded service member. And it's like everybody is opening up, and, and basically everybody's helping each other, you know, help with any kind of mental, you know, issues they have, or they get to talk to somebody that's been there, done that. You know, I'll go in and introduce myself as a, a retired sergeant major, Vietnam vet, and uh, you know, I talk to them, and then what unit were you with? And, you know, and it just it starts a conversation that can last sometimes for 20 and 30 minutes. And uh, we pass out on an average between a thousand and fifteen hundred dollars a visit on gift cards that are donated into the uh, uh, detachment. Uh, we we give out a detachment challenge coin. We pass out uh, dress blue bears that are in the uh, you know teddy bears that are in the dress blue uniform. We pass out uh, an application from the family and friends for freedom from another organization that we partner with uh, in New Jersey, and we partner with many that are all looking to do the same thing. And this is a, an organization that was started by a mother and father who were down there in 2003, the first year we were in uh, Iraq, and they saw how long family members could be with their family members who were wounded. Their son was wounded the first year in Iraq. So they got back home, started an organization, and I pass out these applications, a one-page application that goes, and I pass it out on their behalf. And uh, it basically doesn't ask for a lot of personal information. It just asks, you know, name, uh, situation, where they're from, and all that other good stuff. It doesn't really care if they got a big house and a couple of cars. There's money sitting in a bank when they help them out. And monies have been, uh, check sizes have been from, from 500 to 5,000 dollars go to these families, and believe me, uh, it's a welcome gift to the family members and uh, of the the men and women who are wounded in the hospital. So it's a very worthwhile thing that I've been doing. And like I said, I've been doing it five and a half years. Our next visit is scheduled for uh, next Thursday on the ninth, and uh, I love doing that. Yeah, what I look back is uh, I'm, I'm giving a little bit back of myself. Uh, that the Corps gave me to uh, the men and women who are wearing the uniform today. I got to tell you, I'm really proud of what you're doing. 
Uh, and what you, and what you have said, yeah, everybody's I, I've heard this comment a lot of times. You'll walk into a room, and I, I tell you, I got some stories about some Marines, soldiers with injuries that is mind-boggling. I got, I do a monthly report after each visit, it, and it used to start out as a, you know, maybe one paragraph email. The report has now evolved to four pages. Uh, what we do and what we pass out and all that other good stuff, and uh, you know, people are always thanking me, and I said, no, don't thank me. Just say hello the next time you see me. You know, the, the people that need to be thanked are those men and women that are in the bed today recovering from their wounds, uh, who wear the uniforms of our force. Mothers will say, you know, you look to shake a mom or a dad's hand, and they say, no, you're not getting a shake, handshake. We want to hug you. I mean, it's, it's you know, you, you get into a room, depending on the injury of the, the individuals in the bed, you can laugh, you can cry, you cry with them, you laugh with them, and it's it, it, it's a very emotional day, but a very good way, a very good emotional day to spend the day. And I always say, you know, what we look to do, and I know I get a lot of, in a sense, Eddie, you do a great, no, I don't do a great job. This is what we do. I'm just part of this group that makes this happen. I am just one part. It's not Eddie Neese. And I try to make that point uh, very clear. And, you know, when you, you're shaking somebody's hand, I, I had a, a, a running joke with one of the fathers. It, it took him about two or three times before he said thank you to say hello, you know. And uh, <laughs> he passed me in the hall. He said, oh, not thank you, hello. How you doing, Sergeant Major? And we walked by. So it, it becomes comical. It's a, a, a sigh of relief. It's, uh, it's, it's great for the the family members, and it's even great for us to go down. And we just don't bring uh, members of the Marine Corps League to tax. But I try to get people outside our organization, outside the veterans community, to actually see what is being done at the hospitals for these men and women who are in the hospital. And uh, it really opens some eyes to these people. I mean, I've got teachers, kind of principals, superintendents coming down. Anybody who wants to come down on a visit, all they have to do is contact me. It's a great thing, to, a great way to spend the day. You know, as the war winds down and we pull troops out and there's less contact now, you're seeing fewer and fewer veterans in the hospital? Yes. I mean, you know, depending on, you know, some of the other hospitals around the country uh, are taking wounded now. So, uh, you know, we're now, in a sense, out of Afghan uh, Iraq and now what's happening in Afghanistan. You know, if these... When they, they, back in September of last year, they had merged. There were two hospitals that we would make visit to, the Naval Hospital in Bethesda and the Walter Reed uh, Army Medical Center in uh, Washington, D.C. Well, Walter Reed, the facility closed down and merged with Bethesda, and it's now known as the, uh, the Walter Reed Naval Military Medical Center in Bethesda, and everybody is in that hospital and what used to be maybe just a half a floor that we got to visit, depending on the on the time of the month uh, or how bad things are going over in uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, you have a floor and a half that you could visit. There have been times that we've gone on to the hospital and we have basically run out of everything that we brought down. And, uh, and then like last month, uh, we got to visit six or seven in the hospital and we came back with stuff. So, you know, which is a good thing. It's great to see uh, the hospital's not busy, uh, but uh, it's, it's sad that you have to bring stuff back. You know, we want to give everything out. And like I said, we, we 
pass everything out that we possibly can. You know, I want to want to thank you for coming on board, um, Dave. Yeah. Oh, Sergeant Major, before you go, I got in full disclosure. Hey. I got to tell you. Yeah, I know. I just wanted to put out the Sergeant Major. Yeah, I know. There. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I just wanted to put in full disclosure that. Um, I was portside, Gar was starboard, and Jim was the devil in our in our midst. <laughs> yeah, Jim. Jim uh, there's always one. He was he was <laughs> our uh, he was our drill instructor. And if you get a chance to listen to the show, head over to uh, show to five. Show five on War Stories. <laughs> we kind of have a little fun with Jim. And uh, All right. but it's right uh, unfortunate. I, I, this is I want to say to you, Eddie. This is the very first time that any guest has shut me up for the entire show. Yep. Yep. Really? So, <laughs> congratulations! I think it's and I and I was happy to just sit there and listen because it was fabulous. So we we did have one show where uh, Jim shut up for the whole show, but that was because he was eating ice cream. <laughs> yeah, he was eating ice cream. Does that, mean he, does that mean he wasn't there? No, he was there. Yeah. He just had his he just had his hole full of ice cream. <laughs> so, uh, David, why don't you give us some shout outs and hang around? We got to get some information for you, Eddie, here before we bail. So, don't when, after we end the show, just stay on the line with us. I got we got some questions, but Jay, um, David, why don't you go ahead and All us, right. take us around the, goes, around the horn? Start out today with uh, something that's pretty close to what the what Eddie is doing, and talk about Operation Regeneration um, out of New Jersey as well. OperationGeneration.org. Uh, we have Gunny Wolf down at. At Semper Tunes, he's got his two stores, plus online, SemperTunes.com. Uh, American Vets for Equal Rights. We got Mike Cardato is still in a fight. They're, they're filming down in Oklahoma and other places. Side of Helms out in California with Helping Hands Worldwide. You know, we, we'd love to have you send children books out to her. Just tell her to as a stand at ease has um, asked you to do it. And her address and everything is on our website. The Graffiti of War, people are still going strong. Thanks for the good work there, Doc Gen- or Doc Parson and uh, your whole crew. Doc Bernie Duff, um, I got to get a, we're going to have a link to his uh, artwork up online. It's a little confusing just to list it off here. And then GusMcCoy.com. Join us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash Network. Well, That's it. Well, hey, thanks a lot for hanging around with us. And uh, another show is in the can, but it was a great show. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping Jim will be able to talk you, uh, talk you into coming back and hanging out with us again for another hour if you would be willing to do that for us, Eddie. Anything I could do to make things better for the men and women who wear the uniform today, I'd be more than proudly to do. Amen. Amen. And thanks for doing God's work. Well, for D.B. and Christian over to my left, from where tomorrow, James L. Johnson Jr., and we've got Eddie Neese in, uh, in New York. I'm Garland Green here in New Jersey. New right? Jersey. Forgive me. Lost my head. Lost my head. I'm Garland <laughs> I'm, Green. I'm born in Brooklyn, so that's okay. Hey, that's right. I got a rider. You know what I mean? If you could sneak it under the guest, you know what I mean? I had an out at the end. And I'm Garland <laughs> Green and Natanya Israel. Thanks for hanging out with us for this hour.